Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you be near to us today, speak to us through these words, continue to be our teacher and our guide as we sit with these themes of forgiveness and reconciliation in the life of the church. Help us to be merciful, compassionate people, we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, again, it is so good to see all of you. I was laughing with David just a minute ago as we were gathering. I said, I feel like a grade school kid who's wanted to have friends over in his house to play with his toys. And for six months, I've asked every week, can anyone come and play? And the answer has been no, no one can play today. Um, and today's finally a yes. Today is finally a yes that um, friends can come over. Because we've been doing this. We've been here in this room for months now. Um, and we were just commenting on the way in which it feels like we've been able to go to church, and yet we've not been together as a church family. And so it is so good for that to uh, slowly begin to change and for us to enter our way towards something that feels normal, something that feels like life as we once knew it. And so uh, if you were with us last week, and, and if you're online as well, you may have seen this. Last week we were in Matthew 18. Today we are again as well talking about very similar themes. It's a bit of a continuation of where we left off, looking at the theme of forgiveness. And I said this last week, and if you weren't with us or didn't uh, catch the service last week, I said forgiveness at its heart aims to end isolation. Forgiveness aims to remove isolation. And I think that continues to be true for us today as we sit with these questions of how do we remove isolation, both isolation of ourselves, but also from one another, and then ultimately from God as well. And last week, we kind of had this step-by-step -step guide on how the church community is meant to remove that isolation and be reconciled one to another. And yet it wasn't just a step-by-step -step guide. I pointed out that it's really meant to be more of a picture of what it means to be the church. This is the life of the Christian family being played out, really a life of the Trinity, like our, our Trinity icon reminds us that this is what it means for us to live as people living and made in the image of God, living in that perfect unity. And so uh, today we continue to talk about forgiveness. And I'll just say this, especially to those of you here gathered, but to everyone who may be hearing these words, today is a big step in this direction because otherwise, for me to talk for a few minutes about forgiveness could be entirely abstract entirely theoretical, and here's what I mean. It is very easy to forgive and to live in forgiveness when you're never actually with somebody. For six months, I think over six months now, we've not been together in the same room, which means for probably six months or so, we haven't really had any issues with one another. <laughs> it's been very easy to forgive when you don't see one another, but that doesn't actually mean we're growing in forgiveness. It doesn't mean we're necessarily living as virtuous people. It just means it hasn't been tested. I have an irrational love of sugar. I could eat chocolate all day long. I get it from my mother. If I, I tell my wife, Rachel, I say, we just can't have it in the house. If we buy it, I will eat it. I can't just eat one cookie. I'll eat a whole plate of cookies. I'll eat a whole tray of brownies. It's, it's bad. And, and so if I go for a month or two and don't have sugar, which I haven't done, to be clear, that doesn't happen. In theory, I've resisted that, but it's not like I've actually grown in that virtue. It just hasn't been tested. Um, and so in some ways for us, this is a very timely word to be talking again about forgiveness as we're now actually together 
together because the opportunity or the need for forgiveness might actually now begin to arise specifically for us in the church community. Of course, you've been with people. You've been in other settings in which these words apply. However, we have not been together as the family of God and these words are meant to be directed to the church family. These are written to the family of God. And so I think it's really timely, as strange as this is, as all of you look at me and I can only see your eyes and can only read if you're even like tracking with me based on like the movement of your eyes. And so really like give me some eye movement here. It'll help. Um, I never thought we'd be a part of a church service like this in my whole life. And yet here we are. And yet still, and even something as strange as 2020, these words are deeply applicable, especially for us right here and now. So let's dive in for a few minutes. We begin with Peter as we often do in the Gospels. Peter is infinitely relatable. I love Peter because he says what everyone else is thinking. Everyone else might you know, want to say something, but they keep it to themselves, and Peter just rushes right in. And so he responds to what Jesus has just said last week, talking about how you move towards reconciliation, how you actually forgive someone in the church. And so Peter then poses a question, how many times do I have to do this, Jesus? Because surely this doesn't go on forever. There's a limit, right, to how many times I'm meant to forgive. And it's interesting here. Uh, Peter essentially wants a new, a new law. He says, Jesus, don't, don't teach me how to love. Don't teach me how to be a person of humility or forgiveness or virtue. Just give me a rule. Give me a number so I can know if I'm within the appropriate bounds, which is actually a very Jewish way of thinking. In that day, based on Amos chapter 1, most rabbis in that day would have taught very explicitly you only had to forgive three times for the same offense. If you commit the same offense within the religious community of that day, you were meant to forgive three times. Fourth time, all bets are off. Fourth time, you've gone a step too far. But three times, it was the expectation you would forgive. This is very interesting. I read one commentator this week, and we can't know for sure if this is what Peter was doing, but this is very interesting to think about if there's even a bit of truth to this. They were reflecting on the fact that Peter might have been trying to impress Jesus and to impress the other apostles because he didn't say three, he didn't say five. He didn't even say twice as many as three, he said seven. So in some ways, Peter's trying to say like, look at how much I can forgive, Jesus. Look at my capacity for forgiveness. You can almost hear it in his voice when he says, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as waiting for it, making sure everyone's paying attention, you know, seven times? You heard right, Jesus. I didn't say three. No, I said seven, seven times. Is that how many? And again, we don't know for sure. It's a bit of speculation, but I love that, at least the possibility of that, because then you can almost hear the compassion, the tenderness in Jesus' words as he responds. Jesus says to Peter, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. Many translations say 70 times seven, and it's not Jesus saying 490 times. Peter. No, it, Jesus is saying, Peter, you're missing the point. Forgiveness is not about a number. It can't count it. I'm giving you an infinite number, 70 times seven. Keep going, keep counting. This is not a rule to follow, but it is a way of life. And if it's a way of life, you cannot quantify it and you cannot limit it. He's saying this is meant to be normative of the way in which you live your life. And so do not put a limit on it. You can never run out of forgiveness. And why is that the case? We need to talk about 
human anthropology for a minute, like what it means to be a human, because you and I never run out of the need for forgiveness. There's no shortage of situations or moments and opportunities in which you and I must ask for forgiveness or be forgiven. If it was only seven times, like if, if when I got married, the priest said to my wife and I, okay, you only have to forgive seven times for whatever offense it may be. Like I wouldn't have made it home from my honeymoon. <laughs> like there's just no way in which this can actually be a way of life if we limit it in this way because you and I have an incredible capacity to wound one another. Our capacity for sin, for evil, for brokenness is profound. And I believe it diminishes To be clear, I believe as we grow in the life of God, as we become more and more like Jesus, we are actually new creations. We are made more and more like him. And yet that tendency, that inclination, that capacity for evil, it never goes away. You and I are always sinners. We're always in need of the forgiveness and mercy of God. It's why the early church and many traditions to this day, they pray this prayer all day long, constantly. Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And they say it again, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That prayer reminds me of very famous words from the 20th century uh, poet and writer and artist, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, um, who you may know, you may know that name, very famous in certain circles, a a Russian who spent many years of his life uh, in the Soviet gulag and, and wrote about this, very detailed documents of what it looked like to really come into Uh, first-hand experiences of profound, unspeakable evil. And he has a very famous quote. If you don't know the name, you'll know this quote likely. But he says this about humanity. He says, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, One small bridgehead of good is retained, and even in the best of all hearts, there remains an uprooted small corner of evil. It's a really profound insight into the human condition because you might find yourself in either one of those extremes. You might be profoundly aware of your brokenness and say, all I can think of is how needy I am of forgiveness and mercy and almost crushed by that weight. And these words are very helpful because he reminds us wherever you may be, there is always something within you that has the potential for goodness and for life because you're made in the image of God and he longs to see his image and his likeness restored in you. However, if you fall into the other camp, which many of us do, which is simply thinking too highly of ourselves over emphasizing our own charity or our own ability to be kind or compassionate or graceful, this is a very helpful reminder, even if it's in a proper and true sense. Even if you're a virtuous, holy, righteous person, there is still always within you and me the capacity for evil. There's still that small corner of evil, which means these words will be definitive for the whole of our lives. We can never move beyond them. And so we have to practice this way of life, practice living constantly aware of our our need for mercy and the forgiveness that God offers. It's why we often at Trinity talk about the examine prayer, the Ignatian practice of a daily examine. You've likely heard that a thousand times if you've been around here at all. Um, Or even if not, you may be familiar with it. It's just this idea of taking an account every day, every day taking time to say in which ways Did I today move towards God? Did I live in mercy? Did I live in forgiveness? And in what ways did I move apart? And in 
primarily that, that is meant to help us stay connected to God in our life with him, and yet it also helps us keep short accounts so that if you and I have uh, grievances with someone, if there's ways in which we have moved apart, if we need forgiveness, either to ask it or to receive it, it helps us move towards one another. And so maybe practice that. Chris McDaniel and Karen, his wife, if you know them, uh, they're the, he's the Westside pastor um, of Trinity, and they together have just started a resource called Renewing the Center. It's a podcast, a website, a really simple way, if you've never prayed that prayer, the prayer of examine, simply listen to their latest podcasts and go to the website. They are, are very wonderfully, helpfully trained in teaching people and walking people through how to pray this prayer of examine. It's a very good thing to do because if we can do this every single day, what it helps us do is remember what Jesus' own story tells us, that we are constantly in need of mercy and therefore able to extend it to others. And so as we wrap up, just a few reflections on the story he tells. You know, as Peter tries to wow Jesus and the apostles with his capacity for forgiveness, and Jesus says, no, Peter, it's 70 times seven. He then tells a story. He tells this parable. And as most of Jesus' parables are, it is incredible, both in its truth and its goodness, as well as in its brevity. It's a simple story, and yet it's incredibly profound. And in case we miss who we are meant to be in this story, Jesus is the king, and we are the servants. Jesus is king, we are the servants, and we are servants who owe the king an incredible incredible debt. A little bit of historical context. In that day, one denarius was the equivalent of a day's wage. An average employee would have made one denarius for a single day's work. And so 10,000 talents, which you heard read, 10,000 talents is about 60 million denarii. So Jesus is saying, there's a servant who owes the king 60 million days of work. It's meant to be comical. It's meant to be outlandish. We miss this because none of these numbers mean anything to us. Jesus is telling them something ridiculous. By comparison, the debt that the servant owes to his fellow servant is 600,000 times less than the debt the servant owes to the king. These are ridiculously outrageous numbers, and it's for a reason. Jesus wants us to see two things. One is we owe an incredible debt to God that we could never even begin to quantify. Our need for his compassion and his mercy and his forgiveness is beyond count. And yet, at the same time, by comparison, the offenses we have towards one another, the ways in which we wound one another, the ways in which we need to have mercy and forgiveness towards one another, they pale in comparison to the way in which God has forgiven us. And so what I would propose today is if you have unforgiveness in your heart, if you have someone who comes to mind for whom you have carried bitterness, maybe it's for a short time, maybe it's a single or a few encounters, maybe it's years and years of your life in which you've lived with this unforgiveness like the forgiven servant towards his peer. Could it be that you have lost sight of the amount of forgiveness and mercy and compassion God has given to us? And maybe that's the place to start that Jesus wants us to remember the incredible way in which we have been forgiven because it's not his debt that the king holds against him. Isn't that interesting? 600 million days of debt and the king says, I'll forgive it. With joy, the king forgives it and has mercy. The only reason the servant is condemned, the only reason the servant uh, is punished, is spoken to harshly is because of his refusal to show the same mercy that he himself was given. That's where the judgment comes in. That's where the the uh, need for correction and rebuke comes in. 
But Jesus, the king, is incredibly loving, incredibly merciful. He loves us in our weakness. As it says in Hebrews 8, I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And so as we close, just maybe that's a helpful place for us to land. Uh, Are you and I merciful towards the iniquities of others? Do you and I have mercy for the shortcomings we see in other people? Because it's very easy to see other people's shortcomings. I'm very good at it. (laughs) You are very good at it. We can identify it instantly. We can say, that's the reason that I struggle with them. That's the reason that there's a break in our friendship, our relationship. We see it immediately. That does not require any act of God. What requires an act of God is to see someone's shortcomings and to be fully aware and even have it impact you directly. And instead of judging them, instead of condemning them, instead of talking about them behind their back to other people so you feel better, you say, I have mercy on you. And I do not hold your shortcomings against you, even though I see them and have been impacted by them profoundly. That's the call of the gospel today, for us to be merciful people, just as we have received mercy. Let it be so, Lord Jesus. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.